Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. In this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses the prophet and lawgiver, Jesus is superior to him. And then we're going to talk about how to enter the rest of the gospel and how not to fail to enter into the rest of the gospel when the partial gospel has worn you out to quote that great book by Dan Stone, which I hope you've read. Our context is this. In the previous chapter, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, the author points out that Jesus was flesh and blood, like his brothers, us Christians, we're flesh and blood. Why was Jesus flesh and blood? So he could be our high priest. So starting in verse 1, chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Well, what follows the therefore? Therefore, what? Well, chapter 3 is heavy on applications. The applications of points that were already made in chapters 1 and 2. For example, that the Son is superior to any angel. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, why it was necessary for the Son to become a man, suffer and die, so that he could purify us, so that he could help us when we were tempted, so he could be a priest and a mediator for us. Because of all those things, because of the superiority of Christ, therefore dot, 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 rest of the chapter. Lots of good things are going to follow from the superiority of Christ to everything. Let's look at the immediate reference of that word, therefore. That's in Hebrews 2, 16 through 18, at the end of the chapter. reads like this, For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. That's Jesus. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be like his brothers in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. Therefore, because of that, because he's like his brothers, because he's made propitiation for the sins of the people, because he has tested and suffered, therefore, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now remember the whole context of the book of Hebrews is to show the superiority of Jesus over Jewish things like prophets, like angels. The Jews loved angels. They loved prophets. They loved Moses. And the author is trying to say, look, don't go running back to that old religion just because things are hot now and people are persecuting, the Jews are persecuting you. The author calls his addressees holy brothers. Now, holy means consecrated to God, separate from the world. He had already called them brothers in the passage I just read to you in chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. He says, therefore, verse 17, therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way. Well, if Jesus is brothers, if, if Jesus has brothers that are brothers to Jesus, those brothers are brothers to each other. So they're brothers, holy brothers, brothers to Jesus, brothers to each other. And they're holy because in verse 17, chapter 2, the high priest Jesus made propitiation, propitiation for the sins of the people. So their sins are washed away so they can be brothers with Jesus now and brothers as well as brothers with each other. Now, the author is using this for exhortation, as Steve Ackerson points out. Since you are holy brothers, you need to live up to what you are. Now, this brings up an interesting point. People always think or have this tendency to think that in exhorting people, you need to browbeat them and tell them what such sinners they are. Well, there's no question you need to point out sin. You need to point out that, hey, like in the book of Hebrews, a father chastens or disciplines those whom he loved and it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry god and all that yes absolutely point out the consequences of sin no problem but also you need to point out who christians are these christians who are in danger of apostatizing 
point out who they are, and then they will start living out who they are. Their godly deeds will flow from their godly character. So these holy brothers, they're brothers with each other and brothers with the author of the book of Hebrews, and their companions, companions with each other and the, to the author of the book of Hebrews, they're companions how? In a heavenly calling. As Jameson Fawcett Brown puts it, God calls us from heaven to follow him to heaven. A heavenly calling, a calling from heaven, or a calling to heaven. It's not really clear, so I just assume it's both. A calling to heaven from heaven. And then the brothers are supposed to consider Jesus, the author says. Why consider him? That means look at him closely and compare him to Moses. Now, as I said, Jesus has already been stated to be greater than the angels, in chapter 1 of the Old Testament prophets in chapter 2, or maybe vice versa, but in those first two chapters, yeah, chapter 1 is the angels and chapter 2 is prophets. Jesus is superior to both, and now he's going to be described as superior to Moses. Let's look at an example from Hebrews 1. Having become as much better than the angels, Jesus, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So in chapter 1, superiority to angels. Chapter 2, superiority, also superiority to angels. Hebrews 2, 5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, that's the messianic age, concerning which we are speaking. In other words, the angels weren't in charge of the church, the kingdom of God, the messianic age. Jesus was, so he's better than angels. There's other verses that show he's superior to prophets, which I don't have in front of me right now, but that's that's it's easy to show. So that's the theme here. And so again, he's again considering the superiority of Jesus. Jesus, the apostle. Apostle means sent one. He was sent from heaven to earth to proclaim the good news of our salvation. He's the high priest. He's the one who offers the sacrifice that redeems us and saves us from our sin and washes us clean from our sins. He's not only the offeror of that sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. The high priest of our confession the author has already mentioned that Jesus was a high priest in verse 17 of chapter 2. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that, he, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, remember, the only priest who could enter the Holy of Holies was the high priest, and that was only on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. He went in there to make a sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation, not just an individual person. Now, Jesus, Jesus fulfilled that type because he could enter into the presence of God and he could make atonement for all the sins of the people, the church. So we go from a high priest atoning, offering a sacrifice to atone for Israel, the old Israel, to Jesus, the new high priest, who's making a sacrifice of blood to make atonement for the sins of the new Israel, the people. Jesus is said in verse 1 to be the high priest of our confession, Confession means to declare publicly, to acknowledge. We confess that Jesus, or profess, confess, same thing. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God who made propitiation for our sins. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's your confession. So Jesus is the high priest of our confession, of all those who have made confession of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 2. He, Jesus, was faithful to the one God who appointed him, who appointed Jesus, just as Moses was in all God's household. Now, Moses, of course, was very important to the Jews, and now the Jewish Christians were being tempted to go back to Judaism. So it was very logical for the author to show that Jesus is superior to Moses. Here's what John Gill says. 
The Jews give very great commendations of him. They call him a father in the law. We're talking about Moses now. A father in wisdom and a father in prophecy. And say that he is the father, master, head, and prince of all the prophets. Yea, the great prophet expected in the last days, they say, will be but next to Moses, their master. They observe that there were more miracles wrought by and for him, for Moses, than were wrought by and for all the prophets that have been since the world began. Now that quote, John Gill is soaked in rabbinic literature, and that quote shows you what the Jews thought about Moses in a most excellent fashion. Now here in verse 2, the author is going to show that Jesus is equal to this great Moses. Later on in the next verse, he's going to show that Jesus is superior to Moses. Right now, he's just showing an equality with Moses, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was in all God's household. What's the household? In the Old Testament, the household was the Jewish nation. It was not the temple. It's tempting to think of the Jewish temple as the household, but that wasn't built to some 500 years after Moses. So the household here that Moses is talking about is the people of God, the Old Testament people of God. And of course, in the New Testament, the household was the church. Let's look at some scriptures that talk about how Moses was faithful in his household. Numbers 12, starting with verse 6 and going through, well, just go to verse 7. Listen, he said, God said, listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. So God himself put the stamp of approval of Moses as a good and faithful steward. But now in Hebrews 3, we just read this verse, but also dropping down to verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. So there's your analogy. Moses is faithful over Israel, but Christ is superior over the new Israel, and so Christ is therefore superior. Well, at least equal right here in verse 2. Just as, just as Moses was faithful over his household, Jesus is faithful to God in the same, same way. Moses was faithful to God, so Jesus was faithful to God, verse 2. But now we go to verse 3. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, not just equality now, but superiority. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, this metaphor here, a builder has more honor than the house. Jesus would be the builder. Moses would be the house. And now the metaphor gets a little difficult, a little strained to me. Well, how do we handle that? How is Moses to be considered a house? John Gill says Moses was but a pillar in the Old Testament Jewish theocracy. He was part of the house. He was a pillar, an important part, but he he didn't build the house. God built the house, Yahweh. But in the New Testament, Jesus built the house. He was the author of the house, or the I should say the architect. The, arch, he, the house is not a book. He's the architect of the house. He's the builder of the house. Moses was not the builder of the house. He was a pillar, but not the architect. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown add, Moses was but a servant. Jesus is not a servant. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Now, this doesn't seem to follow, and in fact, the ESV has it in parentheses, because it's apparently a parenthetical statement. But we all tend to want to know, well, why was the parenthesis thrown in there? Why would the author mention this obvious fact that God has built everything? Well, here's how the logic should go. If God has built everything, and if Moses' house is a part of everything, which it is, and if God is over everything, and Jesus is God, well, then Jesus built 
the house that Moses was a part of, and therefore Jesus is greater than Moses. Now that might be a little hard to follow, so let's do that again. Every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. All right, so let's just say that the author is trying to say that Jesus is God. So we read it this way. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is Jesus. Well, since Moses is part of the house that is built, and since Jesus built the house, doesn't that make Jesus superior to Moses? I think so. We go to verse 5, Hebrews 3. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. Now, to what would be said in the future is just a fancy way of saying what would be prophesied of the future. So Moses was faithful as a servant and as a prophet. Now, Moses being called a servant is interesting here. The normal word for servant is slave, doulos. But that word is not used here. The word is therapon. Assuming I said it with the right emphasis on the syllables. Therapon. I'm not sure what the Greek, I didn't look the accents up. But anyway, it's the Greek word therapon. It speaks of a service, of a service that is nobler and of a freer character than doulos, slave. For example, a physician's care of the sick. The physician is said to be a servant when he's taking care of sick people. Jameson Fawcett, this is from Woos, the famous Greek scholar. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that Moses was a kind of a steward. A steward is a high-class slave or a high-class servant. He might be a freedman, actually, not necessarily a slave. But if a steward that's in charge of a whole household is a high-level servant. So Moses was a high-level servant in all of Old Testament Judaism and all God's household. He was a testimony to what would be said in the future. Well, what future things did Moses testify of? Note that in Hebrews 1.1, the author says, Long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Well, Moses was a prophet. Let me read you how he was a prophet and how he was a great prophet. This is a quote from Steve Ackerson. Quote, The writings of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, contain prophecies about Christ and many regulations that serve as types of realities that were fulfilled in Christ. Moses' writings foreshadowed a deeper reality to come. Moses wrote type. Christ is reality. Moses wrote shadow. Christ is the object that casts the shadow. Moses wrote symbol. Christ is the substance. That's a pretty eloquent, eloquent way of describing Moses. Famous verse in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet for you, Moses, a prophet like me, like God, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So the prophet like God that was going to be raised up from among your, Moses' own brothers, that means from the Jews, Moses' fellow Jews, and the prophet that's going to be raised up like that is Jesus, of course. You must listen to him. So Moses was a prophet. He testified of things in the future. Now, John Gill says that the future might include things prophesied of in, un, in the New Covenant era, but it also might be things that are prophesied in the future that are still in the Old Testament era, but they're still future to Moses. Well, I'm, I don't know. I'd have to go check that out. But the point is, is that Moses was a prophet. He was a faithful servant. But Jesus is better. And we go to here, verse 6, chapter 3. But Christ... Again, the emphasis there, the contrast, but Christ was faithful as a son, not a prophet, but a son over his household. And of course, Jesus' household is his church, the New Covenant Church. And we are, uh, we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. Now, Moses is merely in the house, but Christ was over the house. So Jesus is superior because he is over the house. Moses is just part of the house. Now, Christ was faithful as a son over his household. 
whose household? It could be God's household or his own Christ household. I think it's God's household because two verses earlier in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, we read this. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. So it sounds like it's God's household. So Christ, is, the idea is that God puts his son Jesus in, fa- in, in charge of the household, in charge of the church. Now, the last part of this verse can occasion some confusion if you're not careful. And we are of that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. And what that sounds like is, uh-oh, what if we don't hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope? What if we get faint? What if we let loose? What if we run? What if we apostatize? Oh, does that mean we're not in the household anymore? Does that mean we've lost our salvation? Now, of course, the whole book of Hebrews is about people apostatizing. And so everywhere in this book you run into questions of, does that mean you can lose your salvation? Now, on other grounds, I believe it's preposterous to say that you can lose your salvation. I realize there's a lot of good-meaning, well-meaning Christians who say that, but I think they're wrong. I don't see how somebody can stop being a son. I mean, if I have a son, he goes out and rob a, robs a bank, I ain't going to be happy with him. But how, how are you going to reverse that DNA? How is God going to reverse the fact that he's made this person born again by the Holy Spirit of Christ? He's got a spiritual DNA now. He, he's still free. He can go out and do bad stuff, but he's still a son. So we're going to assume that the, somebody can't lose their salvation. All right, now assuming that, how do we explain that we are that household if we hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope? Well, whenever you see an if... In the Greek, it could be a first, second, or third class, sometimes fourth, but usually first, second, and third class conditional. Now, this is a third class conditional, which is the particle aeon plus uh, a subjunctive verb that follows it in the, in the first clause. And that's what you got here. The if is aeon and hold on is if we might hold on, subjunctive. If we hold on to the courage and confidence, I hope. Well, how do you interpret that? That's what they used to call the future most probable. What it means is it's not necessarily going to happen in the future, but it most probably will be. Well, most probably will be, of course. This is what the author is assuming. However, there's going to be, it could be a few, there's a small possibility that some people in the household of God, some people in the church might let loose of their courage and let loose of their confidence and their hope. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean they lose their salvation? No, it could just mean in their personal lives, they shipwreck their lives. People can do that. I know Christians right now that have shipwrecked their lives. Thinking about one right now in my head. People do that. They didn't hold on to the courage and confidence of their hope. But that doesn't mean, and I don't believe, that this person's lost their salvation. Now, there's another way you can interpret this. We are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. And if too many of you people lose lose your courage and lose your confidence and the, the visible church is going to collapse. There's not going to be any church anymore in Jerusalem. That's another way you can look at it. We, If you want to prove that you're in the church of God and we are that household, if we hold on, okay, well, you held on. You have a confidence of hope. You held on. Therefore, you're in the church. That's how you prove that you're in the faith. It's, you managed to make it through the persecution. Well, there's three different ways you can interpret it without saying that somebody lost their salvation. And so... I don't believe that that verse teaches that you could lose your salvation. If we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope, hope is, is a confident expectation of the future. It's like faith. Faith is the substance of things not seen. Hope is the substance of not, things not seen in the future. So hope is sort of a subset of faith. It's a subset of faith that always refers to the future. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now, what's the therefore referring to? It refers to the last part of verse 6. The therefore is at the beginning of verse 7. 
the last part of verse 6 says, if you don't hold fast, you won't be in Christ's household and so forth. So because of the fact that you're let loose of Christ's confidence and faith and, and your hope, if you let loose of that, therefore, because of that, you need to stand firm. You need to not hear, to not harden your hearts. Now, the author quotes a psalm here. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now David wrote the psalm he quotes, but the author of Hebrews said the Holy Spirit said what was in that psalm, which shows that he believed that the psalm was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, of course, back then, inspiration meant inerrancy, too. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. So that proves that David, it proves a couple of things. First of all, is that the psalm is the scripture because it's the Holy Spirit that said it. It also proves that David was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because it was David that wrote that psalm. So he was inspired by God himself. So the Holy Spirit says, and let's see what David said through the Holy Spirit. Psalm 95, verses 7 through 8. For he, that's Yahweh, is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. I say that's Yahweh. Let's just say it's God the Father. For God the Father is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't mention Meribah or Massa. He just says the day of testing in the wilderness. So we need to unpack this a little bit by going back and look at the Old Testament and what happened. And who was David? What was David referring to? But before we do that, let's look at the word today. Today means when David wrote it, it meant today in David's time. Do not harden your heart. When the author of Hebrews says today, he meant there in the 60s A.D. Don't harden your heart. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that every time or say that every time... This psalm is used afresh. The today means at the time the psalm is being used. All right, well, it's being used now in, 60s, in the 60s. And so the author is trying to say, don't harden your heart, you wanting to apostatize Jewish Christians who are being persecuted by the Jewish authorities. Don't harden your heart. And he gave an example of when the Israelites hardened their hearts in the rebellion. Ooh, that's strong words. On the day of testing in the wilderness. Now... David says that happened at Meribah and Massa. Now, Easton's Dictionary says Meribah and Massa are the same place. Now, this is a little confusing because there was another Meribah at the end of the 40-year period where Moses sinfully struck the rock. But this instance that David was talking about in Psalm 95 was at the beginning of the 40-year wandering in the wilderness. It was at a place near in the desert of Sin, near Rephidim, at a fountain called, a place called Meribah, which was also called Massa. Or Massa, I'm going to say it's Massa, okay? Now, Meribah means strife and Massa means testing. It had two names. Now, what makes this a little confusing is that rebellion where Moses struck the rock and water came out, same sort of instance, water coming out of a rock. It happened 40 years later, and it was also called Meribah, which means strife. So there was strife at two different times. So you got to keep those two instances straight in your head. Now, let's go back to Exodus 17, 1 through 7, and, and read the incident. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Quarrel or strife, that's Meribah. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Remember, this is a testing of where the Lord is tested. Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Horeb is mountain range around Mount Sinai. And you shall strike the, right, strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah. See, it had two names. Massa means testing, Meribah means strife, because of the quarrel of the strife of the sons of Israel, and because they tested, that's Massa, the Lord. So Massa and Meribah had two names that reflected what happened at that place. But the whole point that the book, the book of the author of the book of Hebrews is saying is there's testing going on. Who's being tested? It's not the children of Israel. The children of Israel are provoking the Lord. They're testing God. That means in this sense to provoke. That's another. Testing can mean test somebody to see if they're approved or not with an expectation that they will be. Testing can mean to be seduced into sin or testing can mean just to provoke somebody. You're not going to seduce God into sin, obviously. It just means that he, they provoked him. So, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, look, you guys, if you keep this up, you are going to be in rebellion, and you are testing God the same way your rebellious forefathers did. So he's trying to get serious here with these guys. He mentions this again. He repeats the same Psalm 95 verse again in Hebrews 3.15, which we'll take up in our next audio. And the author of Hebrews says today, which means right now, soften your hearts. Right now, don't harden your hearts. Don't wait around. Do it now. How might the Christian Jews then have hardened their hearts? They could have rejected the things of God. They could have had a light view of sin. They could have been filled with pride and conceit. They could have had a lack of interest in God's word. They could have shunned reproof. They could have committed habitual sin. There's a lot of things they could have done to harden their hearts. And what does it mean to harden your heart? It doesn't mean that, that organ that pumps blood. It means the center of your emotions, your desires, and your intellect. And the author says this was a day of testing what happened at Rephidim. Let me quote the verse that shows that clearly. I've already read it to you, but let me emphasize verse 2 of Exodus 17. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them, why are you testing the Lord? Provoking him. Don't do it. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Where your fathers tested me. He's referring to where there. Where you tested me. He's, he's referring to Massa and Meribah. He's referring to, to the wilderness, actually, which is with Massa and Meribah. In the wilderness, verse 9, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Now why would the author of Hebrews mention the fact that the Jewish ancestors had tested God? Well, John Gill says it was to oppose the Jews' constant glorification of their ancestors. And the author is saying, your ancestors weren't all that good all the time. Look at here. So quit trying to run back to your ancestors and say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I want to go back to my glorious past. Now, where the author says, where your fathers tested me, he's quoting Psalm 95, 9, and 10, which I think I've already read to you. I'll read it to you again. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Now, notice there's a contrast here. For 40 years, the fathers tested God, and for 40 years, God did works to help them out. Big contrast. God provided, the children tested. Now, here's an interesting fact, too. It was 40 years in the wilderness that the earlier Exodus Jews wandered around, 
Well, it's been about 40 years since Jesus died. He died in 30. This is the mid-60s. So let's say 35 years or so since Jesus died. And the author of the Hebrews is trying to make an analogy here. You guys are wandering around in the desert. And things are hard, just like it was for the Exodus Jews. Things are hard now. The Jews are persecuting you. But now, if the generation is about 40 years, which is a general assumption, and since the author knew about the Olivet Discourse when Jesus said this generation will not pass away until the temple and all fell, but one stone was not going to be left on another is in the Olivet Discourse. Then, And since it was now 65 or so, and since they knew that Jesus had died around 80, 30, you add 40 to 30, you get 80, 70, and it's now 65. This author knew the judgment was coming soon, and he's probably referring to that. It doesn't explicitly say that, but it's implicit that he is warning against the Hebrews' apostasy. Hey, you want to do like the early Jews who killed Jesus? Well, they got wiped out after 40 years of griping and moaning and complaining. Well, guess what? You guys, after 40 years of wandering around griping and moaning and complaining and not paying attention to all that Jesus said in all of that discourse, which is be on the alert and, and so forth, guess what? You guys could get wiped out. Really? You want to go back to to Israel? You want to go back and then get wiped out and destroyed? The author says that God was provoked with that earlier generation that wanted for 40 years, and the clear implication is he's going to be provoked with you. Of that earlier generation, the author of Hebrews says they always go astray. He's quoting God here. They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. And the implication is, hey, you modern-day, I should say, first-century Jews are always going astray in your hearts, too, also. You have not known God's ways. And, by the way, you're about to get destroyed. We go to verse 11. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Just as the earlier Exodus Jews wandered for 40 years and didn't enter into the promised land. Rest refers to promised land, the holy land. God was anger, angry. And all of those who were over 20, or 20 and older, I believe it was, were, were they died in the wilderness and did not enter into the rest. There was an exception, a couple of exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. But basically everybody died except for the young folks. They didn't enter into God's rest. Why? Because they rejected God. They tested God. They went astray in their hearts. They did not know God's ways. And so they died in the wilderness. And so the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, look, you first century Jews, Jewish Christians, you who have started an exodus from the Jewish world and from the Roman world and from the world in general, you who are the foundation of the church, if you wander away from God, you're not going to enter God's rest either. You're not going to enter the promised land. You will get wiped out. Now, I said rest was a type of the promised land, was a type of heaven. I think I said that. John Gill says that. To me, it's more precise as the type of life in the kingdom of God. Rest refers to heaven, but also in the church here, we enter into God's rest too because we don't work to get our salvation. We rest and he does it for us. So, once again, the implication is you enter into God's rest, which is the church. You receive the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. That doesn't mean you don't work and you don't labor. It just means you, you don't strive to get your salvation and you're at peace with God. But, hey, backsliding Hebrew Christians, you want to go back and join the Jewish faith and start doing the sacrifices at the temple and doing the religious feast as a good Jew. Well, guess what? That's just about to get smashed by the Romans. It's going to be left in a smoking ruin. So what's the smartest thing to do? Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. In Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 19, which we'll take up in the next audio, 
we will examine the proposition that we should not fall away from the living God. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.